Welcome back to Stroke Busters, a podcast presented by the Institute for Stroke and Cerebrovascular Disease at UT Health Houston in Houston, Texas. The purpose of this podcast is to bring you the latest news and discussion in stroke, care, research, community, and academia. I'm Amy Quinn, Communications Director for the Stroke Institute. It's that time again for a Grand Rounds follow-up interview. Dr. Andrew Sutherland, Associate Professor in the Division of Vascular Neurology, Departments of Neurology and Public Health Sciences at the University of Virginia Health, joined us for a Grand Rounds presentation for McGovern Medical School students. Our stroke fellow, Mohammed Ralph, uh, interviewed Dr. Sutherland following his Grand Rounds presentation to ask some more in-depth questions. Let's get right to it. Enjoy. Hi everyone, uh, this is uh, Rauf Chaudhary, one of the Stroke Fellow at uh, UT Health. Uh, welcome to another episode of Stroke Busters at UT Health. Uh, today we have uh, with us Dr. Andrew uh, Sutherland. Um, he uh, he came here uh, today for the Grand Road presentation and he, we requested him to stay for the podcast recording. Uh, welcome Dr. Sutherland. Uh, thanks, Rolf, for having me and to all my colleagues uh, there at UT. So, Dr. Sutherland, uh, thank you for a great presentation. Uh, I mean, uh, we really enjoyed your presentation. It was very thought-provoking, uh, different way of looking like how technology can help in the acute diagnosis of uh, stroke. Um, first of all, I would like to discuss um, some uh, teaching points we had from your grand rounds. Uh, we can briefly recap for the interest of our um, audience. Uh, so the first one um, you discussed uh, is the challenges of clinical uh, diagnosis in stroke. Uh, can you please briefly recap it? Yeah, thanks, Rolf. <clears throat> you know, we um, there's a lot of interest nowadays on um, advanced technology when it comes to stroke diagnosis, particularly in the era of endovascular therapy and large vessel occlusion stroke treatment, um, focused focused on uh, primarily advances in neuroimaging, um, perfusion-based imaging, uh, angiographic-based imaging to make those that diagnosis. But um, large vessel occlusion stroke, is, as many in the audience know, remains a minority of all the stroke presentations we see. And then of all the patients who present to us um, with stroke, whether you know in an emergency uh, department setting or whether we're seeing them potentially in a telestroke uh, examination, oftentimes uh, they're not having a stroke. They're having something that, that uh, looks like a stroke uh, to a pre-hospital provider or, or a non-neurologist provider. And, um, and then it's up to us to sort of feel comfortable with uh, uh, the accuracy of that diagnosis. And so, so I think uh, what um, what we talked about today is sort of taking the concept of clinical diagnosis of stroke back down to the basics of what it requires to make a clinical diagnosis. And, and in large part, you know, the way that, that we learned in training um, is just through repeated uh, exposure to a variety of different clinical stroke presentations and cases. That's why we all want to train at high volume stroke centers so that we can we can see not only common presentations of stroke, but uncommon presentations of stroke. And if you see enough stroke cases over time, you get really good at recognizing patterns um, to help make and support the clinical diagnosis. Um, and uh, we talked about some of those patterns today uh, that go into a, 
you know, the a neurological exam or as it relates to stroke, our, our NIH stroke scale, uh, which is sort of our rapid assessment of stroke. Um, and, and in the talk, I broke these down into auditorily observable neuro signs or uh, auditor auditorily observable neurological signs, visually observable neurological signs, and then hands-on neurological signs. And so, um, so and, and, you know, when you think about it in those terms, there are some things that we can simply observe uh, based on uh, lots of uh, seeing it lots of times over and over again and, and get pretty good at, at knowing it when we see it, so to speak. And there are other things uh, that are uh, that are more difficult uh, to discern that way. And in all these um, aspects, uh, clinical diagnosis remains fraught with variability um, uh, from provider to provider, particularly less experienced providers or non-neurologists. Um, uh, the inability really to quantify many of the neurologic signs that go into a clinical diagnosis of stroke, whether that's facial weakness or how, how much the arm is drifting uh, when you're looking to see if there's limb weakness, or how much ataxia or, or endpoint tremor makes up limb ataxia, uh, et cetera. These are, these are things that are difficult to quantify, and again, based more on pattern recognition than, uh, than, than objective data. And, and then again, the accuracy to be able to make a clinical diagnosis requires repeated exposure and, and lots of experience. And for those of us that take care of stroke all day, every day, then fortunately we, we get a lot of exposure, we have a lot of experience, and therefore our, our, our diagnosis, our clinical diagnosis, um, is, is highly accurate, but for most of the people uh, that see stroke um, before it gets to the level of a stroke neurologist or a, or a stroke specialist, um, they don't have the same volume of, of experience and exposure, and so therefore uh, the accuracy of that clinical diagnosis uh, remains uh, wanting in many cases. Oh, very well, thank you. Um, I definitely agree. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, especially for my own training, um, I mean, I really enjoy the cute presentation of the stroke. I mean, trying to, uh, when I initially evaluate the patient and I like to see, is it a large vessel occlusion, small vessel occlusion, you know, looking at the gaze deviation, looking facial weakness and the uh, asymmetry in the weakness in the arm and the leg. And actually I would like to share um, my own personal experience. Uh, a few days ago, I had a patient in the ED and uh, patient actually had a symmetric weakness in the arm and the leg had facial weakness, no case deviation, and blood pressure was like in um, 200s or so. So I'm a young patient, hypertension history. So I was discussing with one of my, you know, uh, res residents who was working with me. I, I told him, you know, I always like to look at the patient and decide like, is it uh, before I get the imaging? And I like to kind of puzzle it out. Is it a large vessel, not small vessel, is a subcortical stroke? And I I said like, okay, I'll bet, uh, not bet, like I, I would say like, I, I kind of guess like, uh, I think it's likely a subcortical, like is it a hemorrhage or is it like uh, some, you know, I don't think it's a large vessel occlusion. So, and that turned out to right. And it was very rewarding. Uh, the thing which I really enjoyed from your uh, talk today is that uh, how you are adding on top of it, like how we can use computer vision analysis and machine learning on top of it uh, to help us further in this localization. So uh, can you please elaborate on it further? Well, absolutely, Rolf. And, and before I get into to that um, part of my talk, I just want to sort of um, reciprocate your experience uh, as, a, as, a, as a fellow training and stroke today. You know, when I was coming along, um, you know, not to make myself sound, sound ancient, but, um, 
you know, before we got into the endovascular error, at least on the acute stroke side, the really the only question we needed to answer was, is it a stroke or is it not a stroke? Um, and that was mainly to help us, you know, make a thrombolysis treatment decision. And then we needed a CAT scan to know whether it was a hemorrhagic stroke or not. But, but, um, but as we improve our treatments for stroke, it's becoming more and more imperative to be able to differentiate all the various types of strokes, large vessel occlusion, small vessel, and then that factors in as well to our secondary prevention, you know, being able to identify the mechanism. So your experience um, is quintessential to this challenge of clinical diagnosis and stroke. So when you when you think about applying uh, computer vision analysis um, to this to this challenge, and so for for those who are listening who may not be familiar with sort of the concept of computer vision analysis, uh, think about um, uh, uh, technology that could help us better diagnose diabetic retinopathy um, for an ophthalmologist. So basically taking pictures of the retina with um, that has diabetic retinopathy and then taking a bunch of pictures of normal retina and trying to teach a computer to be able to tell the difference, to be able to sort those out to the point at which it could be highly accurate in, in making a diagnosis, uh, either ruling in or ruling out diabetic retinopathy. That's kind of the, the poster child for, for computer vision analysis in medicine. And, and, and really any of the specialties of medicine um, that I like to call the visual arts, um, whether it's ophthalmology or radiology and medical imaging or dermatology, pathology, you know, these are all um, specialties uh, that, are, that are centered uh, on uh, diagnosis um, as the primary, primary um, uh, goal of, this, of, of the expertise. And that diagnosis is largely dependent on, on imaging analysis, being able to look at images. And so, um, so when you think of it in those terms, if you take your average you know, expert, you know, the most experienced, um, say, ophthalmologist in the world uh, still has a limited number of, of exposures, experiences, seeing diabetic retinopathy, again, sort of using this very basic example, the same way that the most experienced stroke neurologist in the world, um, I don't know, perhaps, Jim Grata, you know, there at, at, in Houston, <laughs> um, or, or Clark Haley here in, in Charlottesville. You know, th these folks, you know, have seen more strokes in their lifetime um, and, and non-strokes than, you know, the vast majority of other, of other neurologists or specialists ever would. Um, but even those, even they um, have a limited number of exposures. Um, so then apply that to a computer, right? Uh, and, and, and again, I'm not a your audience should also be aware in full disclosure that I am not a computer uh, engineer or science expert, but I know enough to be dangerous. But if you think, if you think about a computer, um, a, a computer algorithm has a limitless ability to be exposed to data and imaging and experience. And so um, sad as it may be, you could teach a computer um, to uh, analyze an image of diabetic retinopathy um, over a relatively short period of time, um, better um, and without exhaustion or limitation than than the most experienced ophthalmologist in the world. And and so, not to degrade what we do as humans, I think that, um, um, and not to make people fear for their their jobs and job security as physicians out there in different specialties. There's always going to be a degree of of human intuition and nuance that goes into clinical diagnosis, um, but. But it just sort of frames really the the potential that exists in in computer analysis, computer vision analysis, machine learning, and AI um, to augment our ability to make clinical diagnosis, um, particularly in the clinical specialties that are primarily based in vision and in, in imaging analysis, and then thinking about how we might apply that um, 
for neurology and stroke um, and clinical diagnosis in time-sensitive situations uh, such as acute stroke. So, so that's the concept uh, that, that really with today's talk, I wanted people to kind of begin to think about and consider um, about how that might shape uh, the future of clinical diagnosis and stroke. Yes. No, thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. And uh, the practical application which you shared with us was uh, was the evaluation of facial weakness and eye movements of computer vision uh, logarithm. And uh, I think you have published about it too. Would you like to add a little bit on that too, about your findings? Yeah, so um, so our so we're doing some preliminary work. Um, we're one of a few groups that are that are working on this, um, including a group. Uh, shout out to uh, some colleagues at Houston Methodist that are doing some work in this area as well, looking at, at computer vision analysis of um, neurologic signs, common stroke signs, um, and uh, and trying to um, take patients presenting with stroke um, with common stroke signs. And also you need a good comparator group, um, non-stroke um, or folks presenting with mimics um, and um, or healthy controls and being able to um, uh, to input that into a computer algorithm to see if it can get good at sorting uh, true positives versus true negatives or false positives versus false po negatives. You need a gold standard. So, you know, the gold standard remains you know, uh, highly expert uh, vascular neurologists, um, and then and then you can sort of begin to to, to validate um, algorithms as such. And so, our work, our data um, comes from a project called the Bandit Study, which stands for Brain Attack and Neurological Deficit Identification Tool. And this is a collaboration between our our clinical stroke research team and uh, Gustavo Rodi, who runs a, a biomedical and computer and electrical engineering lab at University of Virginia. And um, we um, have been collecting uh, prospectively uh, uh, videos, essentially, of patients presenting uh, with common stroke signs, including facial weakness, uh, uh, arm weakness, limb ataxia, and eye movement abnormalities. And we've also been collecting a similar uh, uh, group of patients who are not having a stroke, um, but are having other uh, neurologic signs that may be confused with stroke, again, stroke mimics of these signs, and then a group of healthy controls. And um, and, and right now, our database uh, uh, numbers in the hundreds and hundreds of images, um, so we're not nearly to where we have a large enough database uh, to, to get the kind of algorithmic accuracy we need, but our prototypes, so we've created a prototype for for a computer vision out, uh, algorithm to detect facial weakness, for instance, and um, and compared compared to uh, um, human raters, and so the comparator group in our mind are not vascular trained neurologists because um, we're really the gold standard. The comparator group that we've been studying are um, non-vascular trained neurologists or neurology residents, um, as well as paramedics. You know, your average um, uh, paramedics, some of which have some have. have minimal experience or early experience and some of which are seasoned, some volunteer, some career um, EMS providers, and, and looking to see if the computer how the computer vision algorithm compares to them. And, and so our, our preliminary data, and this is published data um, uh, uh, that we've presented at the International Stroke Conference and, and some published data that's in uh, uh, Frontiers Neurology 2022, Chad Aldridge, first author, and then Jan uh, Zhang, our, our grad student in Dr. Rohde's lab, has published in the journal IEEE um, in 2020-2021. But uh, using wild-type videos, we can achieve sort of an accuracy um, uh, above 95% uh, 
um, with sensitivity and specificity um, uh, as well, um, comparative uh, uh, to that. This better performs better in some cases than uh, non-vascular trained paramedics and residents. And importantly, one of the early findings uh, that we thought was interesting is that the computer vision algorithm actually makes less laterality errors in the sense of being able to say, yes, the patient has facial weakness, but is that weakness on the right or the left, which we all know is, you know, the laterality is really important to be able to localize disease. So, so that's some preliminary data that we've, we've been able to, um, to study so far. And again, I want to caution that this is not ready for prime time, but it is sort of a proof of concept and hypothesis generating that if we're able to, to develop the volume of images and library um, that we need, that, that hopefully these algorithms can get more and more accurate. Um, and so right now, most of our early work is fo focused on facial weakness, but we also have a, um, a grant from the American Heart Association, American Stroke Association, looking at eye movements and posterior circulation stroke and acute vestibular syndrome. Um, so we're excited about that work and hopefully be publishing more on that uh, upcoming and then um, hoping to, um, uh, to get, uh, secure some additional funding looking at limb weakness and limb ataxia going forward. So, so early days, um, but, uh, but promising and uh, if not provocative um, at this stage in the research. Thank you, Dr. Sutherland. I really appreciate um, uh, that you, you summarized, I mean, the salient features of your um, grand rounds talk. I mean, though you just delivered it, I really appreciate it uh, for the, you know, for our audience. Um, other thing uh, I was reading um, through your, I mean, accomplishments, I saw that uh, um, you served as a past chair of uh, American Heart Association and American Stroke Association Tele-Stroke Committee. I mean, uh, and you had a lot of uh, experience in telestroke. Um, so using that, I wanted to ask uh, what made you interested in telemedicine and how's your experience over the years? Well, thanks, Ralph. Yeah, no, I um, I sort of kind of grew up in the in the era of telestroke as it's as it's really taken off. I I, um, I finished my fellowship in vascular neurology in 2012. Um, and so while I was a resident fellow, my colleague um, Nina Solinsky here at UVA um, already had a, um, a telestroke program up and running. We we did our first telestroke uh, encounter on a patient here at UVA back in uh, 2007, working with a small rural hospital in southwest Virginia, Bath County Hospital. And in the first year, that hospital had never given TPA to a patient, and and in the first year, you know, had um, had already treated uh, a number of patients. And so when I when I learned about that. I just thought that was um, fascinating. I, I grew up in a rural area in North Carolina. I had family members who suffered strokes um, and, and unfortunately never got to see a, a neurologist or vascular neurologist um, before a bad outcome occurred. And so having that own personal experience and then the professional experience of, of training in a place like that, um, it just seemed um, it just seemed like a, an exciting um, uh, field of practice to be going into. And nowadays, I'd say, and, and we talked about this earlier, I'd say it, it'd be really difficult to go out and practice stroke um, neurology or stroke medicine and not be exposed to telestroke, whether you're working in a hospital that takes advantage of a telestroke program or a telestroke partner to provide or to help support that, that care for, for one's patients, um, or um, as a practicing telestroke provider yourself, either in a, in a large tertiary academic center or with a telestroke company now, there are job opportunities um, to practice telestroke. So it really has become a standard of care. Um, there are obviously a lot of opportunity to, 
to enhance that standard of care. One area that I'm interested in and that we're interested in at the you know American Heart um, Association's Telestroke Committee is in is in helping um, better define uh, training uh, standards or training guidelines for telestroke and, and teleneurology. There have been some some uh, um, publications and um, that have come out in the journal of Neurology. Um, uh, looking at this uh, broadly for neurology training, but I think that we uh, we could still um, uh, have room to uh, to provide input on how we um, train uh, people in telestroke, how we teach people about uh, so-called website etiquette. You know, it's uh, had a you know not just about doing the NI shirt scale remotely um, and using the technology, but how do you um, interact and communicate with patients in a remote setting with the telepresenter on the other end, whether that's a nurse or an emergency provider, um, how do you interact with a family member in the room um, via telestroke? These are all real important um, relational aspects of being a good telestroke provider. And then and then sort of pushing the envelope on the technology like we're, we've talked about today in my talk, you know, how can we make it more mobile? How can we apply it in more settings? How can we advocate for better broadband and better cellular so the application of telestroke could be applied in unique settings and, and at a broader level, particularly for for places where um, they are lacking in access and resources like rural areas and, and critical access areas in, in in cities and urban areas like there in Houston. So so I think there's a lot of room for growth and exciting time. Um, if I was a stroke fellow, I'd be really excited today going out into practice and um, and, and practicing telestroke and, and seeing where the field goes. Perfect, but yeah, I'm I'm also seeing that uh, it has expanded a lot. It's not telestroke anymore. It has been, I mean, almost like a comprehensive coverage from any neurological um, uh, like need uh, in many places now. Um, other well, other one uh, thing I'll just mention, I'll just add, Ralph, uh, um, for the audience is that I, <clears throat> what you know, telestroke, if if people aren't aware, is also one of the great um, one of the great areas of success when it comes to um, advocacy. So. Um, folks at um, you know at a national level, at the American Academy of Neurology and American Heart American Stroke Association have advocated effectively to get better insurance reimbursement for telestroke um, in parity with with um, with bedside stroke care. And so that's also you know so so for for folks going out the training, keep in mind the importance of of advocacy to help explain to our policymakers, legislators, hospital administrators the value that telestroke adds. Um, because, you know, clearly, you know, the practice requires um, uh, allocation of resources and reimbursement to be able to to grow those telestro programs um, going forward. Yes, definitely. As uh, to, to my own, uh, from my own experience, as I mentioned during your grand rounds talk in, in, during Q&A, uh, that I had uh, my first ever exposure telestroke was here in UT Houston in my stro you know, rotation. I really enjoyed it, how you can, uh, I mean, like uh, you can quickly assess the patient and uh, get like all the relevant information and make decisions in a timely manner. And uh, though a patient may be like many thousand miles away from you, so it makes a lot of difference in patient care, definitely. Uh, other thing I saw in your, um, I mean, uh, your, I was reading about you that you have been, um, uh, you have been awarded with the Harrison Distinguished Teaching Associate uh, Professor Award. Um, so, I mean, that itself says a lot, but I just wanted to understand, like, uh, what made you interested in medical education and uh, 
how would you guide somebody who's uh, interested in medical uh, education, uh, especially for me and for my colleagues who are interested in future? Yeah, thanks, Rolf. I, um, <clears throat> that really is the other hat that I've worn throughout my career is, is sort of in the world of medical education. I had the, the great fortune of, um, of taking over um, and running our residency program here at UVA Neurology um, all the way since 2013. Um, and this is actually my second uh, stint uh, running the residency program. So I've, I've clearly enjoyed it over time. Um, my parents were teachers, so I think sort of I've always sort of uh, been wedded to being in an educational environment and and um, uh, and for me in my career, uh, I think being around learners, whether they're medical students or residents or fellows, you know, or even, you know, uh, at a peer level, you know, being in an educational environment, um, it just not only makes you hone your own skills better, but it also keeps uh, it, you know, it's an antidote for burnout. You know, we hear a lot about burnout uh, today in medicine and 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 um, in neurology. Um, but it, you know, educate being part of an educational environment with with new people with fresh ideas. You know, a steady stream of enthusiasm and curiosity. You know, entering the field um, when you can be part of that and you can teach people about it. I think it. I think it. Uh, um, it makes for a, a healthy um, career, and certainly that's that's been true for me. Um, I would say that the other um, the other thing about just sort of going into a career in medical education is um, using it as an opportunity for advancement. You know, again, speaking mostly in an academic environment, that um, that being a clinician educator uh, is really exciting because um, you can you know obviously you know become a master clinician, but if you're you're also you know educating about um, uh, clinical care, clinical medicine, clinical stroke, or neurology. Then, then you're concomitantly, you know, growing your career and your reputation in that that realm as well. And so, so you can, you know, develop new curricula, such as, you know, we were just talking about developing new curricula. And telestroke, as an example, would be a great way to to grow one's reputation as an educator. Um, or you can even do education research, you know, studying new techniques and intervention in education. Um, and for that, I'll I'll actually reference. Um, very exciting development that there's um, there's a new spoke journal of the journal neurology now neurology education that that is purely focused on publishing about um, education in the field of neurology and and neurology broadly defined um, as well. So I encourage all the listeners to seek out that new journal and and look for opportunities to to um, to either be a consumer or even publish in that journal as well. And those are all great opportunities for for clinical advancement and growth. And then lastly, I'll just sort of I'll just sort of finish that off by saying, you know, one of the things that I really have um, um, held on to um, as an educator is teaching concepts and fundamentals. And so um, we talked a lot about clinical diagnosis of stroke today, and then we we went right into kind of new age technology. But but when it comes to, to teaching about neurology, I think we need more and more people who are um, knowledgeable, excited and interested in teaching about the fundamentals of, of the neurological exam, of neuroanatomy, localization. You know, th this is the foundation that we're, that, that, you know, we build our, our expertise on um, as clinicians. Um, it's easy to be intoxicated by, you know, uh, advanced medical imaging and, and all the exciting work that's going on, for instance, in endovascular therapy and so forth. And, and I think that's also an exciting, you know, place to be. 
But when it comes to teaching neurology and, and staying true to what, what the essence of, of being a neurologist or a vascular neurologist is all about, it comes back down to being a, a master of vascular neuroanatomy, localization, clinical diagnosis and assessment. And, and that's what we should really hold strong to. And so I love, Rolf, when you mentioned earlier that you always try to make the clinical diagnosis before going to the imaging, because that is something we should all strive to do and continue to educate um, the next generation of, of neurologists and stroke neurologists to do as well. No, thank you. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I also felt like um, like uh, when you try to teach somebody, I mean, you use your maximal uh, intellectual capacity to, to simplify it first uh, for your own self. And then I think uh, automatically it pushes you to come up to make it simple for the other person to understand. Obviously, you are teaching somebody, you want that person to get it and uh, like in a nice way. So so you try to simplify it. And when you are trying to simplify it, that's during that time, I was coming up with a new idea to explain it. And that was actually uh, making me to understand it better at the same time. So I think they say that the best way of learning is to teach somebody and or like uh, or learn from somebody in you know, a like uh, collaborative way. Uh, so it was um, really nice talking to you, Dr. Sutherland. Uh, we really appreciate uh, for staying, um, uh, I mean, uh, for this recording. And I think it will be very beneficial for our audience. Thank you, Dr. Sutherland. Ralph, it's been my great pleasure and honor um, to be part of this and, and um, um, and congratulations and good luck on on your career and your colleagues there and um, and I look forward to uh, to collaborating with you and talking again soon. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this episode of Stroke Busters. A huge thanks goes out to Muhammad Ralph for his time and thoughtful questions and conversations with Dr. Sutherland. And to Dr. Sutherland, we appreciate his time and dedication to teaching the new generation. For more information about Dr. Sutherland, his bio and credentials, a link has been provided in the description of this episode. As always, ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and of the guest and are not a substitute for expert medical advice. Always contact your doctor before starting any program or therapy to make sure you're getting the best care tailored to your unique situation. UT Health Stroke is on social media, so follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook at UT Health Stroke to stay updated on upcoming episodes of this podcast. Share with colleagues, friends, and family. For the latest news, go to uth.edu forward slash stroke hyphen institute. Until next time, take care.